Welcome to the Life Purpose Podcast, the podcast that supports you in finding and embodying your purpose. My name is Paulisari, and I am your host. In this episode, you'll get to hear the second part of my conversation with Bill Plotkin. If you didn't already listen to the first part, I recommend doing that first. In this part, we explore the last two stages of the descent to soul, metamorphosis and enactment. We also have a look at the concept of sacred wounds, as well as the question of how to determine whether an experience was a true soul encounter. Before we dive into the episode, I just want to take a brief moment, less than a minute, to share about a webinar that I'll be hosting soon. It's a free online workshop on the foundations of purpose discovery. It's mainly aimed at experienced spiritual seekers who are turning their attention from the inner work to the outer work. It's for people who have devoted a significant part of their life to deep spiritual practice and who now want to make a difference in the world but who do not know where to start. If you're looking for a way to get to a place where you feel fully aligned with your calling, a place where you're 100% engaged in contributing towards a better world, in a way that feels deeply meaningful to you, my guess is that this workshop will open up new possibilities for you. You're warmly invited to go to paulisari.com webinar to find out more and to sign up if you wish to participate. Okay, so let's dive into the second part of my conversation with Bill Plotkin. I hope you'll enjoy it. Hmm, good. So, yeah, one thing that came to me as you were describing these different kinds of soul encounter is, um, is it always clear that one has had a soul encounter or... Could it be that one has an experience but is a little bit wondering whether it was a real soul encounter or not? And if so, what would be a good way to yeah, to, to clarify whether it was a real soul encounter or not? Yeah. Um, so that's um, a really good question, Polly. There's uh, people often ask us... Um, how do I know if an experience was a soul encounter? Um, because there's lots of profound experiences, including spiritual experiences we have in life, and um, and most of them are not soul encounters. Yeah. So a, a general first part of the answer is, um, you, if you're not in the cocoon or a later stage, or you're not sure you're in the cocoon or a later stage, it's probably not a soul encounter. Um, but if you are in the cocoon, it's um, profound experiences often are. Um, so there's there's often um, intense fear uh, during the experiences, uh, a sense of that death is near, and um, and that like the rug is being pulled out from underneath you, in a certain sense. Um, and we have um, during a soul encounter. There's, there's. We get this, this. A key dimension of it, of course, is that 
we have this sense that we've been shown something about our unique way of belonging to the world. And it's not defined in terms of our social role or our vocation. It's, it's something, it's this mythopoetic understanding, like a stone in the bridge, or someone who is answering the questions of the dead, or someone who weaves cocoons. Um, so, and there's this sense of numinosity, of um, being in the presence of the holy. There's, it's also a sense that, that the experience feels as much like a burden as it does like it does um, feel like a blessing. Yeah. It feels like it is way too big that you couldn't possibly do it. Mm. Um, and that you, uh, as Joanna Macy said, you pray for ignorance. You, you wish it would go away in a certain sense because it seems so big and you know it's going to change everything mm. about your life. Um, you also might find your protective parts, your inner protectors, um, trying to um, protect you from the experience, trying to tell you it's not true or trying to distract you from it in some kind of way. Mm. Um, so I could go on, but um, and in the in the book, the new book, and also in Soulcraft, I go into details about what is what are the common qualities of soul encounters. Not that any one of these is required, really. It's just what's most common of soul encounters. And it's certainly, of course, a contrast with ascent-oriented spirituality where one has the great blessing of feeling um, at one mm -hmm. with the world or, or with um, the divine. Mm -hmm. um, that experience of oneness is a, is a very different experience but yeah. no less profound, of course, than Soul Encounter. Yeah. Hmm. So, and you mentioned that there are practices that can facilitate that soul encounters occur. So can you speak a little bit about that? What kind of practices are you referring to? Yeah. Um, I've already mentioned a vision fast is yeah. um, a, a very powerful way to evoke a soul encounter for people who are in the cocoon and who have are psychospiritually prepared. Um, one of the things I've been, one of the ceremonies I've been guiding now for 40 years is the Vision Fast. It's only one of many um, practices we um, work with. Mm. Um, and the the majority of people that we have guided in Vision Fast do not have soul encounters, but the those who are in the cocoon and who are psycho spiritually prepared, they usually do. Mm. Um, let's see. Um, okay, so um, soul encounters um, can be evoked often through a dream work, a type of dream work, which we call soul-centric dream work. That's another mm -hmm. good example. Of a soul encounter technique, soul centric dream work is unlike the vast majority of Western psychology uh, dream work practices. Uh, most uh, Western dream work practices are early adolescent and even egocentric in their focus. Mm. 
that um, dreams are often used, if not even for entertainment, but to um, help us solve problems in our everyday um, middle world lives, our early adolescent lives. Um, so, uh, and we often, in egocentric dream work, we interpret the dream or somebody interprets the dream for us and tells us what it means. Yeah. Um, this is this is a very adolescent approach to dreams, and it's the most common kind in the Western world, understandably, because most people are in early adolescence. But a soul-centric approach to dream work takes the perspective that every dream for a person in the cocoon or later is an initiatory opportunity. And so that every dream is taking the ego into the soul's domain and um, providing an experience that can shapeshift the ego. So the primary dream work in soul-centric dream work is the, is the work that's done by the dream on the ego. Mm. And egocentric dream work, which is what we have mostly in the Western world, is um, the exact opposite. It's the ego doing its work on the dream, either the, the ego, the waking ego of the person who had the dream or the waking ego of the Jungian analyst or the dream worker who's interpreting the dream and doing things with the dream. So in soul-centric dream work, um, we use practices and perspectives that subject the ego of the dreamer to the dream and help the dream do its work on the ego and shapeshift it. And it's um, something you need a relatively mature ego to for that to work. Mm. But um, we're talking now about soul encounter practices and those are only used for people who are in the cocoon or later. And so those are people who can do soul-centric dream work. Um, another common soul encounter practice is um, deep imagination journeys. Um, this, is, this was Carl Jung's primary soul encounter um, work, and, and not just soul encounter, but his preparatory work was through his, what he called his active imagination. He, was, he would imagine himself falling into the depths of an abyss and he would land someplace and then he would have these um, fantastical, um, dramatic uh, encounters with uh, figures or characters from his deep imagination, some of whom were from the Bible and some were not. Some were from other mythic uh, traditions and some were just characters, usually human, um, from the human world. Um, one very important one was the, a, a serpent. Um, so uh, we call them, in Animus, we call it deep imagery journeys in which we're helping the person go to a depth of the psyche where there are things happening that the ego is absolutely not in control of, um, but that we can support the person's ego to be in relationship to these figures or characters um, from the depths. And so this is one way the soul um, can make itself um, known to us 
through deep imagination. Mm. And then we do lots and lots of different kinds of practices and ceremonies on the land. Mm. Um, our, our work at Animus is always individualized, even when we're working with groups, um, that the guides in the group are attending very, very carefully to the experiences, both the inner and the outer experiences, the uh, initiates are having, the wanderers are having, and uh, helping them design specific uh, ceremonies and practices that help them go deeper. And often um, this involves uh, their relationship to a particular landscape or a place in a landscape or um, a certain species or a particular animal um, on the land. Um, so then there's, um, it can be body-oriented practices where the body is uh, brought to extreme cases, uh, not cases, sorry, extreme um, conditions through uh, breath work, mm-hmm. um, through physical exercise, can even be uh, things like yoga practices. Again, this would only work for soul encounter for the person who's in the cocoon and on the descent um, let's see, maybe that gives, uh, an idea of some of the, um, possibilities. Oh, I'll mention even council work, mm-hmm. um, can result in soul encounter for people who are just very prepared and, and ready and open. Mm. So again, um, my two books, Soulcraft and The Journey of Soul Initiation, um, list actually dozens of other kinds of practices that can bring about the encounter with soul for people who are psycho-spiritually prepared. Mm. Yeah, great. So... Oh, then... you know what? I'm sorry for interrupting you here, but mm-hmm. there's one other kind that I should mention mm-hmm. um, because it's it's a different sort, but it's very um, effective and profound. It's what we call sacred wound work. Mm-hmm. Um, so sacred wound work, first of all, is something that a person wouldn't be able to do or prepared to do or would benefit from until the cocoon stage. It's, and it's not a kind of therapy. It's not a kind of healing. And usually when we talk about wounds, we're talking about a healing or therapeutic process. Um, but this one wound that every, one kind of you, wound that every human has which I call a core wound. And it's, um, I got this idea, um, this image from the uh, Western, the American psychologist, Jean Houston, who writes just beautifully about this. Um, she calls it the sacred wound, but I like to differentiate be- between the time that wound is first discovered and when um, it reveals something sacred to us. So at first I call it a core wound and it's unlike other kinds of um, psychological wounds, uh, not just because it's not meant for healing and it's not healable, but because it has two components. And one component is some kind of vulnerability or sensitivity that we're born with, that we're actually born with. You might say it's the soul sees to it that we're born with it. It's some um, incredibly uh, delicate uh, 
place in our psyches where we, where we feel most vulnerable and most fragile, but it's also a special sensitivity we have to the world. And um, like, you know, Achilles had his heel, which was his place of vulnerability. But everybody, every human has some uh, superb sensitivity and, and we're each born with it. And the reason I believe we're born with it is because without it, our egos would form through our childhood and early adolescent, our egos would form so in, in such a solid, impenetrable way that nothing could ever break us open, and, and which is necessary for the journey of soul initiation. And so mystery has, in the design, if you will, of human beings created us in such a way that we have this weak point, this weak link, um, um, what Leonard Cohen re refers to it as um, the place where the light gets in. Yeah. Uh, there's a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in. Or uh, Navajo weavers here, uh, rug weavers here in the um, American Southwest, um, they always have an intentional flaw, we're told, in the, in the weave. Mm -hmm. There's one place where something is um, out of place, and they call that a spirit line. And um, the spirit line is, is where the spirit gets into the, this, this piece of art. Mm. Um, so we have, as humans, egos, we have this spirit line, this crack. Uh, and it's this place of great sensitivity and vulnerability. So that's one part of the core wound. It's something we're born with. It's not something that, that anybody did to us. Um, the second part is one or more events that happen in our life, usually early in our life, that um, touch upon that place of great sensitivity and vulnerability, that irritate it. Um, and these are wounding events. And people often think of, of kinds of... Um, psychological or sexual abuse at the hands of other humans. And that's one kind of a wounding event. But there's all kinds of wounding events that don't even involve other humans at all, like um, being born with a certain kind of childhood disease or um, losing one's parent when when one is younger um, or some kind of physical accident and so forth. And usually it's more than one wounding event for each one of us humans. But each time uh, this wounding event happens, it irritates the, the wound. As you could say, it's like a key that fits into the lock of the wound and, and opens it up. Um, and as in childhood, we do everything we can to protect ourselves from those experiences and those memories mm. uh, because we're just it's way too sensitive. But the, the uh, mythos of the of the sacred wound is that at the very core of it is this sensitivity, this capacity, this kind of um, uh, power, soul-oriented power that we have. And when we're in the cocoon, um, we're able to go back in our psyche and our memory and re-experience those wounding events. And through those wounding events, be able to touch that 
um, that innate sensitivity or vulnerability. And in there lies a certain kind of treasure, mm. a certain capacity. Um, so for one person I know I read about in the book, um, when she went into her core wound, uh, what she found was essentially what she ended up calling the witch. And mm-hmm. uh, it's the witch um, who holds all of the the deeper powers of the feminine that if she had embodied that as a younger person, she would have uh, been uh, abused psychologically and maybe even killed. I mean, we know about the witches that were literally killed in our own European historical past and so um, she had to hide the witch away from herself and when she went into the depths of her wound she found the witch and got to know the witch and knew that and discovered the powers that the witch had that she needed um, she this person needed in order to um, embody her soul work so Sacred wound work is one way to get to soul, but it's not the only way. It's not required, but for many people I've known, it's it's been the portal to their encounter with soul. Yeah. Okay. And and I get curious if you would like to share a little bit about um, your sacred wound and how that relates to your purpose, if if that's okay. Well, I don't know if um, I'd say I've had a soul encounter through my sacred wound, um, but um, it has supported my um, the metamorphosis of my ego. My sacred wound, it's, it's not an uncommon um, theme, is um, the fear of being seen and the longing to be seen. Mm. Um, And there's, uh, for me, it's a sensitivity about being truly seen by others or by um, people in general. And um, it, by touching that sacred wound, I I touched the place in me that is, most empathic and compassionate and that um, has the capacity to see others. And as a soul initiation guide, it's very important that we are able to see others very deeply. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, it's, it's a, this sensitivity, I believe it leads me to be very vulnerable to being seen, but it also gives me a capacity to see that is maybe uh, greater than than most people have, maybe at least a little bit. So, and um, so, it it um, that my sacred wound is a way to for me to access the resource of that kind of deep seeing and that desire to deeply see others and and in weaving cocoons. For helping in helping others weave cocoons, that's it's a central capacity um, that I have, um, and to to use it, I I have to touch that very vulnerable place in myself, and so it might 
save me from a, a kind of arrogance as a guide that I would have even more of if I didn't have that wound. Hmm. Uh, because to be an, uh, an effective guide, I, I have to be coming from that place of great vulnerability. Yeah, great. Hi, sorry for interrupting. I would just like to take a brief moment to share a bit about what I do as a purpose guide. So are you a person who has devoted a significant part of your life to deep spiritual practice and who now wants to make a difference in the world but who doesn't really know where to start? Do you have a sense that something is calling to you but you can't grasp exactly what it is? It seems like it could be several different things and it's difficult to choose. What you would like is to get to a place where you feel fully aligned with your calling. A place where you are 100% engaged in contributing towards a better world in a way that feels deeply meaningful to you. So my solution to this dilemma would be to help you find your purpose. Because when you have that clarity about why you're here, why you're alive in this time and place, it's so much easier to choose. And when it's easier to choose, it's easier to get engaged in what you're doing without constant doubts about whether what you're doing is the right thing. So how do we do that? How do I help you get clear about your purpose? It's a process that is very much about connecting you to your soul, because your soul, the deepest part of yourself, is the part that knows your purpose. So the whole program, the Purpose Discovery Program, is very much centered around helping you get closer to your soul and to get information from your soul about your purpose and the different aspects of your purpose. We divide purpose into eight different facets, vision, powers, values, essence, giveaway, task, message and delivery system. And through different kinds of practices, you will gradually more and more clarify each of these throughout the process. Towards the end of the process, you're likely to have a very good soul-level understanding about why you're here. If this sounds interesting for you, you can book a free introductory session. It doesn't cost you anything, just a little bit of your time. We'll have a chat and we'll see if the program is the right fit for you and if you and I are a good fit to work on this together. So if you feel called, I really want to encourage you to go to my website and find the contact page and book a free session. Okay, let's get back to the interview. Thanks for listening. Hmm... Okay, so we are running towards the end of our time, but we have a few minutes left. So let's let's just briefly have a look at metamorphosis. And um, so that is that's a stage where we form a sort of a new identity based on our soul uh, initiation. Is that correct? Um, yeah, based on our soul encounter, mm. um, it's, but we aren't doing the forming. We're the yeah. raw material that's getting formed. That's yeah. the important distinction there. Mm. Yeah. And how does that happen? What can that look like? 
in real life. Yeah, okay, so for this is this is um phase four mm-hmm. of the descent to soul. It's the phase that follows the encounter with soul, which is to say the glimpse of mythopoetic identity. <clears throat> and there's um in the book, there's the new book, there's um several practices for supporting that, but the primary one, the one I'll mention here, um, I call experimental threshold crossings. Mm-hmm. Uh, the shorthand is ETCs, experimental threshold crossings. Mm. Um, and these are, are practices where we, uh, the, the person who's, who's relatively recently had a soul encounter, uh, imagines themselves in the world embodying their mythopoetic identity. And they ask themselves, well, if in my everyday life as it is now, if I were to do something as that person, as the person who has that identity, like in my case, as someone who was born to weave cocoons, what sort of things would I, I do? And it's not even delivery system. It's not how would I serve my people. It's just what kind of choices would I make in terms of what I would do that day, what maybe gatherings I would go to, what kind of uh, activities I would engage in, what kind of conversations I would start with people. Um, What would I do? Mm. And I call them experimental threshold crossings because it's halfway between a soul encounter, what happens to like a bridge between a soul encounter and uh, a later delivery system that even if even when I didn't really know what it meant to weave cocoons and I'm still learning 40 years later what it means but even before I had hardly any sense of it at all it was still possible to ask myself what would I do as a a person who has this image of weaving cocoons at the core of his psyche what kinds of activities would I engage in and by engaging in those activities um inviting soul to reshape my ego. So, for example, um, one of the first things I did was um, to guide vision fasts. And this is way before I had any training to do so. But I started, I put these groups together and um, and I wasn't weaving cocoons at first. I was just being a vision fast guide. Mm. Um, and I was doing it um, the way I'd been shown by my teachers how to do it. Um, but by putting myself in that situation, um, I was letting soul do its work with me. And it would, um, so in the midst of guiding these ceremonies, which were maybe eight or nine days long, when I first started, and three of those days, people were out on the land, the people I was guiding were out on the land uh, fasting. Um, I would be, of course, in base camp with my co-guide, but the intensity, the psycho-spiritual intensity of guiding was such that virtually every time I would be, I would feel sick for those three days because I was just exhausted by the intensity of, um, and I think what was happening to me was um, the, my soul was was reshaping me while I was guiding. I was getting changed as much as the people who I was guiding Mm. Um, and 
there, I remember one particular time when, uh, in the very early years, I was guiding, and we were in council uh, with the group before um, people went out on their fast. We were out camped in the land in a remote place in the desert. And I got it um, in the midst of that council that my job was not to be their friend. Mm-hmm. That was not my job. And, and my task was not to get them to like me and to refer other people to me and tell everybody they know that I was a great vision fast guide. Mm-hmm. And somehow I thought something like that maybe was part of my task, like, you know, in the sense of the early adolescent sense of um, building a business or something like that. And I realized that, that I, in fact, was something like an agent of death for them. And I had to tell them the truth, even to the best of my understanding, even if it would be offensive to them. Mm. And then I heard the muse whisper to me, this is in the midst of a council, that I was going to have to look everybody in the eye and tell them individually that I'm not here to be their friend, I'm here to be their guide to the descent, and that I would do my best job at that, even if it was something that I thought would offend them. And um, the muse said I had to, next time I got the talking piece, I had to sit in front of each person one at a time and look them in the eye from a few inches away and tell them that. And I said to myself, there is no way I'm going to do that. Mm. Are you kidding? Um, but when I got the talking piece, um, the muse said, this is what you must do. It was kind of like an experimental threshold crossing the muse gave me. And I did it. It was absolutely terrifying. But um, I was deeply, deeply changed by that. Yeah. That was a, a metamorphosis moment for me. Mm. Great. So now we have gone through the four four of the five phases of the descent to soul. So let's just have a little piece about the enactment phase. How would you describe that phase? Yeah, the enactment phase is um when we re- we have returned to the village. <clears throat> and um and we start asking ourselves, how can I actually serve the world to serve other people, usually? It mm-hmm. takes that form. How can I serve others um, through my mythopoetic identity? Now, this is, again, before a delivery system has been cultivated. But unlike metamorphosis, where it's simply, you know, like what kind of gathering would I do? Would I... Um, attend if um, or how would I spend my evening or how would I be in this important relationship in my life from this mythopoetic identity mm-hmm. with enactment we're asking actually asking ourselves how can I serve others from this even before I cultivate a delivery system and this deepens the metamorphosis and also forms a bridge towards the discovery of what kind of delivery system might um, be appropriate for us. So an enactment um, is something, is a phase of the descent 
especially when we're still in the cocoon stage of life, which is to say before the passage into early adulthood. And that passage I simply call, you won't be surprised, soul initiation. That's when um, soul initiation is that time in our life when we get kicked out of the cocoon. We get kicked out of the mystery school. And remember, every stage, once you've been in it for a while, is the best stage of life to be in. So the cocoon was fantastic. It was it was a mystery school. It's, it's a time in life when we're most exploring the mysteries of the psyche and of the um, self-organizing um, more than human world. And we're constantly learning and we're going on these spiritual adventures all the time. And at some point, um, mystery says, great, you've learned enough and your ego has been shape-shifted enough that you're ready to actually apply all these things you've learned and to serve the world um, and to study one or more delivery systems for doing that. And that's when we get kicked out of the mystery school of the cocoon. It's a terrible trauma. Um, it feels like the worst thing that could possibly have happened to us. Um, and part of what brings that about is having um, given some effort to the enactment phase of, of at least one of our descents to soul, mm. where we're putting ourselves in the attitude of someone who is was born to, to serve the world in a special, a certain kind of unique way. So the enactment phase is often what triggers our soul initiation and the shift of our center of gravity from the mysteries of the cocoon to the, what I think I call the embodied, uh, culturally serving mysteries of the um, wellspring, where the focus is on building um, a delivery system to be of service to the world. It's it's not, you know, it's and that kind of service that we can uniquely provide is also the source of our greatest personal fulfillment in life. Mm. That, that, that those two, fulfillment and service, are not separate things. Yeah. Uh, our soul work is not a job. It is um, the way to be the most we can be and serve the world the most we can and to have the deepest joy that we can have in a human lifetime. Well, wonderful. So um, I could easily go on for several hours here. I have so many questions, but I think it's time to end here. So yeah, I'll just give you a, a little bit of time here at the end to share about anything you'd like the listeners to know about your work and how they can yeah, work with you or with, with other people at Animus Valley and about your books and so forth. Yeah, thanks, um, Polly. Um, so you can find my books any place where books are sold. The new one, again, is The Journey of Soul Initiation. just came out um, about a week ago. Um, but I've been working on it for five years and in some ways for 40 years and maybe some ways for a few lifetimes. And um, the name of our organization is the Animus Valley Institute here in southwest Colorado in the valley of the Animus River. And um, we have about 20 soul initiation guides now 
um, who live in, in all kinds of places in North America and um, Europe. And we guide programs um, th through in many places in North America and South America, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, um, probably a few other places. We've been to Israel a couple times, for example. Um, and you can find us on the web at www.animus.org. Animus is spelled like the Spanish word for souls. It's A-N-I. M A S animus.org. Um, until this past COVID year, our programs have always been in person and usually in, in wilderness settings or at retreat centers on the edge of wild places. Uh, typically, five days are our shorter ones, and our longer ones are 14 days long or a, a series of meetings for a year. Um, this year, this past year, we um, shifted many of our programs to online experiences in which we still um, invite people out onto their local land to do practices on the land. And by this summer, we're looking forward to being mostly in the field with people, although we do still have some in-field programs um, happening in places using uh, COVID protocols. And we have two training programs. One is for soul initiation guides. The other is for what we call wild mind guides who support people in, in holing and self-healing. Um, so that's a brief overview. And I um, want to thank you, Polly, for this conversation and the opportunity to speak to your listeners and introduce people to our work. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Bill, for taking the time to be with us here on the show. It's, it's been great to have you here. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you're interested in the free workshop that I mentioned at the beginning, I encourage you to go to paulisari.com slash webinar to find more information and to sign up. I also want to mention that when you sign up for the webinar, you get a free membership to the members area of my website. Among other things, this gives you access to a guided purpose discovery meditation. This meditation is an excellent place to start your purpose exploration. These are strong words, but I can almost guarantee that this meditation will give you at least some piece of new information concerning your purpose. I say that based on that this is what people again and again report back to me after doing the meditation. There are also other great resources in the members area, such as a purpose embodiment meditation by Brody Hartman, and instructions for how to do a soul sit by Tim Corcoran, as well as guidance on how to find one's purpose from teachers such as Sarah Beek, Terry Patton and Dustin DiPerna. So if you're interested in the free webinar, as well as the materials in the members area, you can go to paulisar.com webinar to find more information and to sign up. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Have a great week and I'll talk to you soon.